For two years, the hydraulic earthquake stabilizers in the 13-story called Nuevo Leon apartment building in Mexico City were left out of service. Two years. Thought they were going to save some money. However, unexpectedly, at 7.30 a.m. on September 1985, a devastating earthquake shook the entire city of Mexico City. And now the 13-story building began to sway. And without this hydraulic stabilizer to cushion the shocks, this building continued to sway until finally a third of the building broke into pieces, loose at the foundation, and it fell over sideways. Another third of the building came crumbling down floor to floor, crushed like a tin can. Only one third was left standing. And for 15 days, rescuers dug through the rubble to search for survivals. Unfortunately, for most, the result of neglecting the inner defects were tragic. Everyone died. Friends, so it is with our spiritual life. So it is with, without the maintenance and the watchfulness over particularly sin in our life. The neglect in one area open ourselves into tragic results in other areas of our life. Tonight we are exposed to the sin of adultery. That foolish destruction, self-destruction of a marriage and of a family. Anyone who engages in it, especially if a believer, becomes completely blind to what comes next. Until someone like the prophet Nathan calls them out and says, you are the man. We left last time looking to the episode of the life of David. We are going through several key episodes from the life of David. Last time uh, David was at his height. He just conquered Goliath, you remember. And uh, today we want to look at this passage which is a parallel to what we saw with Saul weeks ago. The way that these two kings re relate with their sin when their sin is caught. And the different reaction that they display, Saul and David, in this case. So he was at, there at his height last time. Now we meet David as his lowest point. He had triumphed over Goliath. And that had opened an endless persecution from wicked Saul. Which un uh, led ultimately Saul to his death. And that now the second book of Samuel has opened with David ascending to the throne. And he covenants with God in chapter 7, a beautiful, marvelous covenant that God makes with David. Everything goes better and better until you get to this point. David has not reigned in Jerusalem long before there's already this tragic turning point to his story. At the pinnacle of his career, David decides to stay home instead of going to battle. And instead of being busy with the things of the military, he had the luxury which leads him to watch what he shouldn't have watched. And he sees this woman bathing. And as he watched from the height of his palace, he stumbles and falls. He covets, commits adultery, starts to lie, deceives multiple times the poor Uriah, to the point that uh, there's no other way but to murder Uriah and take Uriah's wife. 
What makes this all the more inexcusable is the timing of the event. You see, God had just established a covenant with David. And this is therefore, it's kind of a, I would say, a satanic attempt to threat that covenant. And David, for his, for his part, is completely self-deceived. He, he thought he had covered his tract, but now... Uh, our chapter previous to this, verse uh, 27 of chapter 11, ends this way. That the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See that? That there was nothing hidden from the hands of God. So Nathan now comes again to the king. This time not to commend the king for his devotion. That was the last time with the covenant that God makes with David. But to correct him. And it's interesting how Nathan the prophet here doesn't go straight to the accusation, but he uses kind of a backdoor to now trap David and force him to acknowledge his, his sin and confess it. And this causes David, this sin causes David and also his family, his kingdom, serious repercussions, undeletable repercussions. This chapter opens this gradual downfall of David. That he too is not perfect. He's not spared the right judgment for his sins. As long as he lived, David will be troubled. And troubles will keep arising to plague him until his death. However, unlike his predecessor, Saul, he's not totally destroyed. There is a covenant that God makes with David. There is, David is not a perfect man, but he's a man after God's own heart. Because facing this dire lasting consequence for his sin, he's still forgiven. And why is he forgiven? Because unlike Saul, he repents of his sin. He remains a man after God's own heart. Weeks ago we saw Saul's reaction when he was exposed to his sin by the prophet, another prophet, Samuel. But by this time Samuel has died, Nathan has taken the place of Samuel. And that, that, that time Saul was just not showing repentance. And, and, and Samuel had told him to obey is better than sacrifice, remember. But now we see the exact same situation with David, caught in sin, and we will reflect on why, although David was sinful too, unlike Saul, he still had a heart after God by the very fact that he turns away from his sin. He confesses and he turns away from his sin. That David is brought now face to face with his sin. Sin of adultery and murder and the dire consequences that come with it. Let us look at our text uh, as we look at the beginning wording there for you of verses 1 through 6. Nathan comes with this engaging example to, to David. There's a rich man who stole the only one sheep that the poor man had. And we have to kind of fit in the, the characters here. The rich man is actually David. And the one... Only sheep, the lamb, was Bathsheba. And the poor was Uriah. The only thing is that David doesn't know that this is the story. The Lord sent Nathan to David, verses 1. That means that this is a message from God. Nathan did not come up with this story, okay? It is simply reporting the story from the Lord's. And Nathan comes to David's throne. He tells him, there were two men in one city. Now, this was a common thing among kings. Nathan comes as if he needed some to express a, or lay before the king a, a civil case so that he might decide over the case. It was common. 
to resolve kings and to resolve disputes among their subjects. So David thinks this is one of those cases. But in reality, it's a made-up story to actually catch David in his sin. There's this one rich man with many flocks. Now, the irony in this story is David knows about flocks, right? He was a humble shepherd. And now God had made him rich. He had made him exalted and as king of Israel. And he has now many wives, many riches. So this story is from God is a further appeal to his conscience. But there was this poor man in the story, Uriah, who had nothing but a, a lamb. And Bathsheba in the story is that lamb. She was beloved to her husband. The sheep in the story is treated just like a daughter, a tender, innocent, loving image. However, that loving and tender image had been ruined by David. And here's the complication to, to the story, the imaginary story. Verse 4, here comes a traveler, a stranger, a visitor, a guest who can't come to the rich man. But instead of offering one of his many flocks, he took the poor man's lamb. That one poor man's lamb and he cooked it to the visitor. That is an unjust affront that is crying out to the king to do something about it. However, the king doesn't realize that that's exactly what he has done. Taking Uriah's wife. Let us look at the response of David. Verses 5 to 6. David here is the judge. He is just toward others. But he's very condoning toward himself. And that is the problem that we see here. Verse 5 and 6. Now David cannot contain himself. His anger greatly aroused. He burned and kindled. He became hot. There is a vehement rage in David now. And he's infuriated. And he says this. As the Lord lives, that man deserves to die. He's swearing over his judgment of the man. Shall surely die. He's as good as dead. I mean, who does he think he is? Now, careful, David. Careful what you wish for. Because this is about you. Here the king unknowingly produced a sentence of death upon himself. And he says, he must restore fourfold, four times as much as what he stole. Why? Because to David's acknowledgement, he had no pity. He had no compassion. He did not spare the innocent. It was indeed a cold-hearted crime toward one like Uriah, who did not deserve such treatment, who was loyal to David. And in light of God's response to David in the next point, David himself here shows he has lost sight of that pity of that compassion toward himself God made him a king and he had no absolutely no mercy no compassion on Uriah to just cover up his sin because of this insatiable covetousness who had plenty of wives had a lot of a large house just like the man in the story David shows stinginess he was cruel what's happening here is like you know, people will come to you and they say moralistic statements to, to, to you about someone else's sin. But then the person in front of you replies to you, yeah, but that's exactly, that's you, by the way. That's what's happening here. There, there's a disconnect between David, righteous words, and actually looking at his own life. How self-deceiving by this time sin has become in the life of David. Even in the life of the believer. 
He has no problem applying the right criteria when judging others, but he's totally oblivious here to how this same principle applies to himself as well. First, it applies first to his blatant secret sin. Oscar Levin said this, a clear conscience in times like these might be a sign of just a bad memory. And there's a bad memory in David here. David knows cruelty is wrong, but he still doesn't realize he was actually being just that. He has been the cruel in the story. Sometimes the only way to finally trap someone who is caught in sin is through the back door because of the self-deception that sin causes. Look at Nathan. He takes a simple story, a test or a pretest, to let them discover how in condemning others they have been condemning themselves. But as we'll see next point behind the bait, is actually a front door approach. I mean, Nathan will come and say, you are the man. Friends, the solution to heed sinners blinded by their sin is through leaving them no way out but to confess their double standard that simply doesn't stand. And again, notice what is wrong so far in the picture. What is wrong so far in, in David here? The answer of David is where the issue is. He's blinded by his own passions. And he's self-righteously applying a criteria in judging others, but he's unwilling to apply that same criteria to himself. I mean, isn't that the way most people think today? They're just happy to recognize someone else's sin. But then they're we become blinded about our own sin. The reason, however, is because they, there's, that is the power of sin. The power of sin is blinding. But now let's look at the sentence of sin here in verse 7 to 12. Nathan has to unmask the sin of David. And he has to show how foolish that sin is. In, in light of something, however. In light of the kindness of God. God's kindness toward David is the very thing that screams at you that, that the sin is absolutely inexcusable. And so now verse 7 starts with these words from the prophet. You are the man. You are that man in the story. It's like calling someone out before everyone for being rude. But this is far worse. Nathan the prophet brings home the truth of the story. He accuses David. He points the finger at David. You are the rich man in the story. You, David, are the one who did this. And even worse, you are the man in question. Then verse 7 continues. God continues to show the absurdity of David. The absurdity of his sin in light of the grace of God. And all the gifts that God had given to David. The kindness of God, like the pity and compassion in the shepherd's story over David. He had everything he wanted. God had blessed him. Undeservedly, he had been anointed as king, delivered from the ends of his enemy, Saul, who had persecuted him for so long. And all the persecution he faced at the hand of Saul. But now that persecution is gone. And guess what? When, when you, 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 you calm down and you are no longer under that, you begin to enjoy pleasure and the heart of David was wandering. David took his place. He had many wives, many children. And it's, if that should have been a, insignificant, God could have added, our text says, even much more than that. That is the bounty of the kindness of God to, to which the sin of David flies in the face of. If only David would have asked. You know, the words, what makes David's sin all the more fraudulent is how David so far has not kept in mind the generosity of God toward himself. 
In fact, he's trampling against the goodness of God. And that trampling, friend, becomes a double sin. When we, we don't not only sin, but we sin in light of the kindness of God toward us. And we just have to break the deal. We just have to transgress. God's undeserved gifts toward him. And now this open now to discipline. You see that? The covenant has responsibilities. And, and I want to say as we approach Thanksgiving in, a, in less than a month, that, that, that thankfulness is the perfect antidote against sin. That it is the lack of thankfulness that ultimately is the root of sin. That leads, I got to have something more. I got I to gotta take something that I don't, that is not mine. It's someone else's, my neighbor. I covet my neighbor's possessions. And that ultimately must be quenched by thanksgiving for what God gives. But let's look at verse 9. Why David's sin is in this covenantal relationship, okay? Remember chapter 7. In that covenantal and relationship with the Lord, that sin makes absolutely no sense. David despised the commandment of the Lord. And obviously there are several commandments that he has broken. He has lied. He has committed adultery. He has murdered he has done what is evil in God's sight. He has killed Uriah. He has taken his wife for himself. And not only, he has, he has actually used the Ammonite, just like an Ammonite would do. That in context, that's exactly where Uriah dies. He dies in the, in the front of this town that, that uh, Joab was commanded to take in the siege. David had commanded that Uriah be killed by the sword of the enemies of God. The Ammonites. Joab was trying to siege this city. And there he commands, David commands Joab to let Uriah go forward and be killed by the sword at Rabbah. The city of the children of Ammon. Verse 26 and verse 20, 31. Now the Ammonites, they, they were the ones that they were showing no kindness to Israel. That when they passed their territory under Moses... They were the descendants of Lot. We've been going through in Genesis on our Sunday school. They were associated with the Moabites. However, there was a particular sin of fornication that they are famous for. Because through Balaam, they incited Israel to fornication. In other words, if Satan cannot get the man after God's own heart to, to actually you know, sin in a way that Saul did, then he has to take away the favor of God toward him through this sexual sin. And then ultimately introducing the breach of the covenant as, as David brings a curse upon the nation. David himself will invade later the Ammonites, but this is Uriah. This is an Israelite that from God's people, an innocent man that has been sent to die. And this behavior, therefore, is unacceptable. Paul Washer says this, we, have, we are not to seek the approval of earth, but the honor of heaven. And I say this in connection to Nathan, to the words of Nathan in our text, that he is absolutely unashamed. I mean, you have to appreciate the boldness, the faithfulness of the true prophet of God here. Nathan is completely unconcerned of David's high position as king. He's completely unconcerned of what may come next. He unashamedly tells him his sin to his face. And why is the reason? We've been exploring this theme with the opposite with Saul. But Nathan here fears God, fears God's word more than he fears a human king. 
And therefore he's willing to go to his face and says, you are the man. This shows how, how our sin must be rebuked openly and boldly. How only by being completely and jealously guarding God's name can we stand with such boldness. I mean, who preaches this way anymore? We're so afraid to offend people. We're not afraid, however, how through cowardice, actually, we are offending God by not addressing sin. That sometimes God, through even other believers, suddenly has to shake us from the sluggish self-deception of sin that has been rooted, that has been deceiving our mind, our planning, our, our thinking. I mean, adultery right here is a blinding sin. It blinds the person. You begin to rationalize the sin. You, you depict an image of yourself as a good person. But it's a false image. It's an idolatrous image that only coming face to face with the reality, the bare truth, only coming face to face with the word of God, that destroys that false image. That's why sometimes nothing short of a slammy word like Nathan here can do. But look at also the fact that it doesn't stop there, okay? That there are consequences for sin. Let's look at verse 10 and 12. That the house of David, which means his entire family, his entire future, now faces judgment. And this judgment is, is, is a public judgment, even though his sin was secret. Okay? Verse 10, Nathan comes in. Sin opens now to chastisement, even in the life of the believer. Even in the life of David, you despise the Lord with such sin. And that, that sin cannot go unpunished. The price of the sin is very high for David. Swirls shall never depart from your house. We know from the following history, history of David, how David's children killed each other. And verse 11 says, adversity will be raised within your own family. This is how far-reaching are the sins of adultery from one man. One act to the entire family. The child that is in the womb of, of Bathsheba, Yedida, will die in the womb. Tamar, a beloved daughter of David, will be raped by Amnon, David's own daughter. Absalom will then kill Amnon for doing that. And that after that, Absalom starts a revolt against his own father, David. And then he finally takes his kingdom... And he comes back to Jerusalem to take the concubines and lie with them in the sight of this son. That is the prophecy right here in our text. What's done in the darkness shall be brought to the light. I remember when I was uh, still in high school, I, I went to this museum. And there was this writing where the visitors were to write a note. And I, I, I was an unbeliever. I was very much uh, a troublemaker. I started, I wrote a very bad comment. My professor finds out, finds out that it was me, and I was brought in front of the entire class to the principal office. There's nothing more shameful than that. And what David did in this secret sin, he thought, you know, I'm going to get away. Nobody knows about it. God is going to show to the side of all Israel for this sin. I mean, if ever there was a motivator to not sin, here it is, friends. Beware of the mess that sin particularly in this text, adultery introduces in the life of the true believer. This is referring ultimately to what Absalom will do later. He conspires against David. He takes Jerusalem and does that right on the roof of the palace in the sight of all Israel as a direct fulfillment of this prophecy. 
And, and that sin doesn't end even there. Absalom then dies all the way to Adonijah, which is another son of David who conspires to take the throne from Bathsheba's own son, Solomon, who himself disobeys God. We know Solomon in ways even worse than his father as he went after women. So sin has an incredible consequence, far-reaching. It is never worth. Verse 12, David thought no one knew. David thought he could get away with this whole plot. But God tells him to his face, you did this secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. That's why our Savior says in Matthew 10, 26, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. David's sin here indeed has been found out. He ungratefully and secretly committed adultery and killed an innocent man only to be now punished severely and publicly for his sin. You see how sin sets into motion events with irreversible consequences. You see that? The consequences of sin are untold, unnumerable, undeletable, even for the believer. Oh, yes. We often think, you know, I'm a believer, I'm forgiven for all my sin. Yes, that is true, but the reality is here very different. Believers, you, you better trust David. He's a believer, but he says to you, sin is never worth it. Sin brings brokenness. There's always a price tag on sin. And just because you've done it in secret, don't think that private sins will not fail to bring public consequences. Either now or worse of all on the judgment day. Where all it is inescapably seen before the entire court of heaven. But now I want to with you focus on the third aspect here. That we must look into parallel with what we saw with Saul. And that is the response of David. And the, the, the end of our text, verse 13 to 15, shows us that David, unlike Saul, has a repentant response. Now, both Saul and David confess their sin, yes. But there is a difference in David. And that's where we enter into this matter of being after God's heart. The first thing he does, he confesses his sin immediately. Verse 13, without excuses, without rationalizing, without justification... He's no longer able to deny. He has been caught and unmasked in his sin by the prophet Nathan. And he says, I have sinned against the Lord. One sentence from, from Nathan did it. He doesn't say, oh, how dare are you to speak like that to your king, Nathan? I'll have your head cut off. No. His heart is quick to confess his sin. He first, the first thing you notice is, unlike Saul, David immediately confesses his sin he doesn't make excuses he owns his sin wholly possibly even accepting as we know from the words of of nathan right after accepting the sentence of death upon himself because the response of nathan in verse 13 the second part testifies to this perhaps in response to david's concern he promised the lord as here's the the beautiful promise the lord has also put away your sin you shall not die friends the Despite the great sin of David, God still loves David. That is incredible. That is un, undeserved. That because ultimately there will be a, a sacrifice provided for the sin of David. Ultimately there will be a defenseless lamb, an innocent lamb that will, like in the story that Nathan told, die for the sins of David. The son of David who was offered for the forgiveness of David's sin. Yes, he's forgiven, verse 14 to 15, but he's also chastised. That is what we want to see in verse 14. There's an however. 
to this whole thing. That you can be forgiven, but this is true, you're forgiven. But there are, there's a long-lasting chastisement in the life of the believer that remains true, despite the fact that forgiveness remains in place. There's still a painful consequence of sin, a sad fruit of sin to reckon with. That's why those who say, I'm forgiven, I'm under grace, as if God doesn't chastise His true children for their sins, as we can proceed to sin more because grace may abound. That is grossly mis misplacing yourself in a situation of danger by not considering the lasting chastisement of sin. Friend, if you don't experience chastisement for sin, you're actually proving that you might not be a child of God. Because God will always chastise His true children. Whoever God loves, He corrects. Whoever He hates, He leaves to themselves. Perhaps even to enjoy their sin. Perhaps even to proceed in prosperity in their sin. Until future, sure, unescapable, and complete judgment comes at once when they least expect it. And it will be forever. But David, that is not the case with David. David is a believer. And he is forgiven. However, he must be chastised. Why? Our text says, You have given a great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme by this sin. Imagine what the nations surrounding Israel will say. Remember, the goal of this kingship, the goal of David was to shine to the nation and show to them the God Yahweh. And now here comes this king who follows Yahweh. He's allowed to commit adultery and murder. What does it tell us about their God. David's adultery and murder as the anointed king of Israel utterly scorned the Lord because of his position. Because he is now a representative of God and he has utterly scorned the Lord by his acts. Not just because he sinned as a believer, but because of the position of influence for God's people he had. And therefore this offense cannot be unpassed. This utter contempt toward the Lord cannot be unpunished. And therefore the child dies shall surely die. The fruit of adultery faces the tragic death. And verse 15, Nathan goes back to his house. Hosea Balu once said, There is no immunity from the consequences of sin. Punishment is swift and sure, one and all. Yes, David is forgiven of his sin. And that is the beauty of God's undeserved grace toward a sinner, a wretched sinner. But he's still to be punished for his sin. He's still to face the consequence of sin. That God, unlike David, first of all, has pity. He has mercy and forgives. David was cruel, and like that story in the, the, the shepherd. Even though David doesn't deserve it, God will forgive him. That is the, the, the way the gospel brings through healing to our sin. That no matter how monstrous our sin is, we can receive forgiveness if we confess our sin and we turn away from such sin. And there at the cross, finally our sin was expiated, which means completely removed. In Psalm 51, David, right after this episode, will cry out in his room as he fasts, and he confessed this sin. He acknowledged this, that even animal sacrifices were unable to remove his sin. And ultimately, what we foreshadowed with, with Saul comes to the surface again. That a broken and a contrite heart is what God was looking for in David. 
And that is the, the heart of the true repentance, that you are broken and contrite in your heart and not against, okay, I did this, I messed up against these people, I feel sorry. Against you and you alone have I sinned, O oh God. That is what God is looking for. That God still forgives, but He also remains just. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Yes, the believer is forgiven for his sin as a believer, but the fact that he's a believer and that he sinned like that, he becomes a double sin, okay? Something to not be undermined. It becomes an insult to the cross. Yes, that sin was paid by the Son of God dying on the cross. And then there are dire consequences for sin in, in, the, in the, the life of David, even as a believer. Now, some may wonder why the baby in the womb had to face the judgment and not David himself. That is, I want to say the judgment was not on the child, okay? The, the judgment was on David. Each one is responsible for his or her own sin. However, this entire passage shows us that while the guilt of sin remains personal, the effect of sin of David goes to his family. The effect involved those who are immediately around us. All David's children, not just Yedidah. In fact, I want to say, Yedidah is spared to see the destruction that will come upon the family. And he's taken away. In fact, the family dysfunctions in David's family from this point forward will be unending. They will, the children will kill each other until David finally dies. So how do we conclude, dear friends, as we looked at this Episode. Last time we looked at uh, the faith of David. David, however, here shows us that he is not perfect. But he is indeed a man after God's own heart in the way that he repents. He confesses. He turns away. He, he's transparent. He, he has God's honor. He, he, he has a broken and contrite heart because he broke the honor of God. Really, I want you to, to meditate on, on this fact that Sin find, will find us out, no matter how hard we try to hide it. What is sin, by the way? Sin is any behavior outside the will of God. Anything we do outside God's will. You can cover sin by deceiving others like David is doing here. Even as a believer, he can get in that level of self-deception. If there's something that this story teaches us, to be especially on guard against self-deception. And self-deception is a, an opinion of yourself that is not in tune and is not matched with your behavior. There is a subconscious almost denial and rationalization of sin. The first evidence, you think about Adam and Eve. That the, our conscience is tainted with sin starts there in the garden. And such strategy of trying to hide behind a fig leaf will not work. Because our fall will come out into a blatant way before everyone, one, one way or the other. I want to say even in, in church, if someone is caught in wrongdoing, we must bring him or her back to true repentance. Back to a true fellowship with God as they confess their sin and turn away from sin. And they must not remain in a state of self-deception. Because God is not mocked. That what you sow is what you reap. Now, notice that the beauty... There is a beauty of forgiveness indeed, but the gospel does not mean when it comes to the Christian, yes, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin if we confess it. But also I want to say, don't expect all the negative consequences of sin to simply disappear. Especially as we think about our family, especially as we think as we are fathers and we lead our family, we better lead our family and our church. 
toward faithfulness. Yes, God forgives David, but what a horrible price to pay for one foolish moment of pleasure. One foolish act. It was not worth it. One act of disobedience destroyed his life. So friends, don't allow even minor failures in your life to sidetrack you from obeying the will of God. That ultimately this heart after God means that when you're exposed to, to the truth, you wholeheartedly turn to it. You submit yourself to it. You yield yourself to it. Don't hide and then be found out with the words from God, Thou art the man. Let us pray.